Good morning. Hey, if you're new to FCC, welcome this morning. My name's Brian. I get the joy of serving as one of the pastors in the life of this great church. Uh, typically, you'd see me in North Andover most Sunday mornings, uh, playing with those kids down there. But uh, Pastor JP is babysitting those kids, and I get to keep my eye on you this morning. So welcome if you're new with us. Really glad you're here. Who is this Jesus? Um, many have argued that this is probably the most important question that you can really ponder or wrestle with in some ways. And, and, and um, Christmas, as we're trying to promote and argue and, and have dialogue over and, and compel you to, to think through from the scriptures this, this uh, Christmas season, has the answer. Um, the answer to it, too, as well, will completely flip the script on how you view life and how you live life and how you think through life. Like, everything changes if Jesus is who he said he was and claimed to be. Um, I've been reading a lot of uh, author Flannery O'Connor lately. I've been inspired by other people who've read her, and I've been reading a lot of her recently. Maybe you've read some of her stuff, but she puts it perfectly in her great story, uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Maybe some of you have read this. Uh, in the story, there's this escaped convict named The Misfit. It resonates with me because that nickname is kind of stuck with me uh, through my adolescent years, the misfit. Uh, so it kind of resonated with me. It made me think about my, my past in some ways. But uh, the misfit, nonetheless, he's an escaped convict, and, and he needs a car, right? He's, he's, he's broken out of jail, right, prison break? And so uh, he breaks out, and he needs a car, and so he captures this family because he needs the car. And so in the, in the whole midst of this, what winds up happening is him and his goons wind up taking uh, family members out in the woods and shooting them. He's got kids and family members, and, and really the, the whole time, too, is, is him and his goons are taking these family members out into the woods and, and shooting them. Um, the grandmother, who's like the matriarch of the whole family, uh, she's kind of, she represents like some shallowness. She kind of represents the shallow culture that we live in some ways because she's trying to kind of talk him off the ledge in some way. She's sitting there saying, hey, listen, uh, I know you don't want to do this. Uh, you're a good person. Yeah, I know there's really some good in you. I can tell you don't really want to harm people. You don't really want to do this. You're a good man. Uh, but just before the misfit takes her out into the woods and shoots her in the chest three times, he basically says to her, he says, hey, listen, uh, there's no good or bad people. All right? Jesus, uh, if Jesus is who he said he is, Everything is thrown off then. Everything is off balance. Everything is, is up in the air again if Jesus is who he said he was. Because if he is who he said he was, then listen, we all have to throw everything off to the side. We have to lay down all of our preferences and the things that we deem important. And we have to follow him. We have to oblige. We have to obey. And we have to put our all in. We have to push all our chips in then if Jesus is who he said he was. But listen, if Jesus isn't who he said he was, then who's to say what's bad and what's good? Who's the moral compass here? Who's to say if I want to go to Vegas and potty it up, right? Like, I can't do that. Who's to say if I want to go into the woods and shoot people, I can't do that? Who's to say what's good and bad? If Jesus isn't who he said he was, and if God hasn't brought hope into our midst through Jesus coming into our world, if, if Jesus isn't the Christ, if Jesus isn't God, if Jesus doesn't bring hope in the midst of darkness, then we're still left in the darkness. And who's to say what's good or bad or what's harmful or what's good for me, right? And the misfit actually gets to the point of saying this. He says, uh, hey, listen, who's to say I could go do whatever I want? If I want to shoot people, I can do that. But even in that, there's hardly any pleasure in that. 
Right? So it's something telling with the misfit there and the story there. Really, it comes down to this. Who is Jesus? All of life, really. All of your life and my life hinges on how we answer that question. Who is Jesus? Either he really is the light who has come to shine in the darkness as we've been walking through this Advent season. Or listen, the Christmas story is just another cute little Christmas story, right? Filled with warmth and, and, and choirs that we love and it's awesome and, and kids and singing and, and Christmas cookies and gifts and lights and trees and, and a big fat jolly guy with, with a beard and with a hat and the red and he comes and we take pictures with him. It, but we're still left in the darkness. After the cuteness of Christmas wears off, if Jesus isn't who he said he is and he's not the light who shines in the darkness, we are still left in darkness. The darkness. There's two things we want to consider from the text this week that Cindy just read from. Two points. This, apart from Jesus, number one, apart from Jesus, we're spiritually dead. Verses 9 and 11 show us that. Apart from Jesus, we're spiritually dead. The second point is this, that through Jesus, we have new birth, new life, and a new family. And it's my big hope that as we walk out of here this morning that you and I would see Jesus. We would see and savor Jesus as the true light who truly does come to bring life and a new identity to live from this Christmas season. All right, you ready to work with me? All right, here we go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the grace and the privilege. God, thank you for breaking into my darkness, Lord, and shining the high beams of the gospel into my heart, Lord, and bringing hope and transformation and freedom. And I pray you do the same for brothers and sisters here this morning. So glad, so thankful that you bring us together for a time and a season like this. And we beg that you come and be really good. God, that we would come and we would hope and long for you to show up and do something special in our midst and in our lives. God, please hear my prayer and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we go. Number one, apart from the light, uh, we're spiritually dead. Human beings apart from Jesus, as we, we learn in the scriptures, that human beings apart from Jesus are spiritually dead, uh, so, so to speak. John uh, says in 5, says, uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, a.k.a. cannot overcome the darkness. The darkness can't overcome the light. Then he says here in verse 9, he says, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So what we have to begin to assume as we've been digging through this Advent series with the theme of Christmas lights uh, the thing that we're looking at, um, we have to assume that even in John chapter 1, that um, there's, a dark, there's a reason why the light had to come, and it's because darkness existed. And darkness is often um, pointed to uh, in the scriptures as, as death, as a spiritual death. Uh, human beings being left in the darkness, they're dead, spiritually speaking. Then you move on to verses 10 and 11, and it says, Jesus' life is like a light, and yet when he came to human beings, um, to his own, they actually rejected the light. Pastor JP talked about it last week with John. John kind of came, and, and he wasn't necessarily the light, but he started preaching about the light, that the light was about to show up on the scene and expose darkness. But John himself was not, the Baptist was not the light. He talked about Jesus, the true light, who would enlighten everyone. So Jesus shows up, and it says that even in the midst of his own people, his people rejected him. They couldn't see him, and they couldn't hear him for who he really was. If you, if you kick over into Luke's gospel in chapter 4, you get a little picture of this. Like Jesus uh, rolls up on his hood, a.k.a. his neighborhood. He rolls up in his hood, and he, and he shows up among his people group, and they're, they're mad. They're, they're filled with rage and with fury, and they're angry because of what he's doing and what he's saying, and they drive him. They want nothing to do, and they drive him out of town. They reject him outright. 
His own people were dead with no capacity to see or, see or hear the light among them. Now, you know this probably physically speaking. Like when you're dead, like you can't move. You can't see. You can't sense things. You don't hear things when you're dead. It's the same thing spiritually speaking the Bible gives us descriptions of. Same thing spiritually, right? Um, but here's the difference. A spiritually dead person, right, um, can stand up, can walk around, can feel someone pinch them. Spiritually dead person can love the Bruins. Can love the Bruins. That would, you know, you're okay in my book if you love the Bruins. You can love the Bruins. A spiritually dead person can enjoy sewing. A spiritually dead person can enjoy a beautiful piece of art and gaze at its beauty and love it and enjoy it. A, a spiritually dead person can enjoy a great ensemble, great musicians, great artistry in some ways. A spiritually dead person can walk across the street to Palmas, even though the deck's not finished yet, but even though they can walk across the street to Palmas and enjoy a great steak and love the taste that the steak gives them, right? But the same person can hear about Jesus, can get into a conversation about Jesus and the things of God and find Jesus boring, can find Jesus irrelevant, can find Jesus um, tough to understand, could, could get mad at Jesus for some of the things he said to some, so to speak, nice people who were doing some nice moral things. They could get mad at him. They could find Jesus absolutely repulsive. You could look at the story of Jesus and you could actually find it unfortunate what happens to Jesus, innocent Jesus, perfect Jesus. That it's a tragedy that an innocent man goes to the cross and dies the way he dies his death. You could find Jesus unfortunate. To some extent, you can be a spiritually dead person and show up in a building like this week in and week out to a worship service and say, sure, in some ways I believe this. I like Jesus. This is, this is pretty good. I like it. But do you really see it? The question is, do you really hear Jesus? Are you overcome with a joy every time talk about Jesus pops up on the radar? Are you overcome and thrilled to your soul every time the things of God and the promises of God and the truth of Scripture begin to be talked about, whether it's from a lunatic like me up front or in a conversation with someone having a coffee afterwards? Are you thrilled and excited about what God's doing and, and who Jesus is and, and the Christmas season, what it means to us? Are you thrilled? Because the real answer is this. Is if the answer is no to that, then there's no real connection at all. The plug hasn't been plugged in all the way to the outlet, so to speak. Because when Jesus, the light, shines into your darkness, man, something happens. Right? Something happens. The things of God begin to thrill you. Joy begins to well up inside of you. You begin to find nourishment in life through what God has done and through the words of Scripture. You start having these conversations about Jesus or you're singing about Jesus or some lunatics up front preaching to you about, about Jesus and you get excited. You start to remind yourself and think about, man, how could God actually come into my dark, the darkness of my own life and do what he did for me? Why would he ever do something like that for me? And you begin to think through his love and you begin to gaze upon God coming at great lengths to draw near to you and that he's opened up the floodgates for you to draw near to him now. That through Jesus, we have a pathway to relationship with the creator of the universe now. That begins to thrill your soul. It begins to excite you. You begin to change. You're at peace. You're at joy. You're at happiness, right? Even in the midst of turmoil. So why, where does this all come from? It's because you see that you were once dead and are not alive, right? Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead. 
You are sons of disobedience, children of wrath, following the ways of this world. The great reformer Martin Luther said, we were all na- he talks about sin, he likens sin and people who are sinful as navel gazers. Meaning this, we are so turned in on ourselves and our own conditions and our own lives and our own preferences and the things that we want, we've placed ourselves on the throne of God and we've moved God off of that. Which is really what Ephesians 2 gets at, that we are dead in our selfishness, dead in our ways. But God in his grace came to you. And God in his grace came to me, came to us collectively. And the high beams of the gospel shined brightly into the darkness of your life and into our world so that you and I could clearly see our need for a Savior. And Christmas screams at us, Jesus is that Savior who has come. Praise be to God. My wife, Danielle, and I, we were watching a Christmas classic this past week, 1989, Clock W. Griswold, National Lampoon, Christmas Vacation Baby. <laughs> Love that movie, right? Some of you guys, some of you husbands in here are just like Clark W. Griswold, I bet, right? Very, very finicky about Christmas and very rigid and things got to be a certain way and the tree and, 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 and family coming over and being nice and neat and polite and not, you know, being a mess and crazy. But you know Clark's family, if you've seen the movie, right? They're, they're just a bunch of messes. But the biggest mess of all shows up. You remember who that was? Who was it? Eddie. Right, Eddie shows up with his family. He's got kids, and I think some of his kids had like three or four eyes in their head and just like completely messed up family, right? And Eddie shows up on the scene, and Clark is totally on edge now, right? Because he thinks Eddie's just going to ruin everything, right? And he's having this conversation with Eddie in the, in the living room, and he's cracking walnuts, and Clark's just looking at him, and he's on edge, and he just starts having this dialogue. He says, Kid, Eddie, can I get you some eggnog? Maybe I can get you something to eat. Maybe I can drive you off into the middle of nowhere and leave you for dead. Listen, as much as we can know, by God's grace, that we are spiritually dead, we can also know on the flip side of that bad boy that God has not left us in the middle of nowhere for dead. God has not left us there in the middle of nowhere for dead. And that's point two, right? That through Jesus, we have new birth, we have new life, and we have a new family. Check out verses 12 through 13 in chapter 1. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. If you, if you read a few minutes later in John 3, Nicodemus is this, this expert guy, and he's having this dialogue with Jesus, and he's scratching his head over this whole like born-again concept, like new life, and just figuring out, like how does that happen physically, like being born again? And Jesus tells him, that this new birth is nothing like the physical life. It's nothing like the physical birth that takes place. When we talk new birth here and new life, we're talking the implanting of God's nature, God's Holy Spirit, surgically into the heart of human beings now, which brings about new life out of deadness. And listen, this here is huge, so big. Listen, united, change only happens when we see our need for it. Transformation only begins to happen when we acknowledge that there's darkness and we need a way out of what we were in before. And the minute that you and I start to acknowledge the darkness in our life and we see our need for change in a rescuer, we're actually close to God. We're actually very close to the light when we begin to acknowledge our deadness or our darkness in our life. But if you're anything like me, 
my natural impulse when I see areas of darkness in my own soul is to start to go something like this. I've got to do a better job. Man, I've got to make some changes in my life. Man, I, I've, got to, I've got to really, new resolutions. I need new resolutions. I need new objectives. I need a whole new path. I need a new chapter. I need to turn over a new leaf in my life. I need to try. And yes, yes, changes will come if I try hard enough. And you know, we've got the new year coming, right? So you know what that means, right? Resolutions. Some of you guys are already working on that bad boy. You guys are already writing it out in your journal and you're thinking about these things. All of these resolutions, right? Like, I've got to eat better. I'm going to stop cursing at people. I'm going to treat my spouse better. I'm not going to watch certain things. I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to get my eight hours. Like all these different things. I'm going to get outside and shoot some hoops with my kids. Whatever it is. Right? You start doing the resolutions. The list goes on and on. But can I offer you some Christmas cheer for the soul this morning? You and I, if we take the, 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 the avenue of just trying to make more resolutions, we're setting ourselves up to be crushed. We're setting ourselves up for failure or to be destroyed, right? Because you know what we do? Most of our lives, we have standards and we have expectations that we put on ourselves, and what happens? We fail to meet those expectations and those standards, so what do we do? New Year's comes around, and we make more expectations upon ourselves, and we put more standards upon ourselves, and we make a new list, and we just start piling stuff up upon each other. The old ones still exist, but because we haven't met those, we start to make new ones, and you know what winds up happening at some point? It's like a stack of books just falls over and you're crushed and destroyed and flattened on the ground. This is the natural human response. It's to put moral band-aids over the old wounds. We're hoping the new expectations will actually get us there, but they never ever quite get us there. Do they? Here's what John points us to in this, right? It's not that you and I just need to turn over a new leaf in our life, but we need a whole new life if you come into this place not knowing what new life is. We need not just a new chapter. I don't need just more moral band-aids or I don't need Jesus to be my, my, my compass to help me live a better me. I need Jesus to make me a new me. I need Jesus to take a dead person and make him alive. I need Jesus not to make, turn over a new chapter. I need Jesus to rewrite the whole story. I need Jesus to make me new, not nicer, not better, not cuter, not warmer, not more politically correct, not grammatically correct. I need Jesus to make me new from the inside out. And so do you. So do you. Those are two different, totally arenas, two radically different arenas. Jesus is just like my moral band-aid to help me get to a better life, or Jesus who takes me dead in my sins and makes me alive. If I just take Jesus and try to do the moral band-aid thing and live a better life, that only contributes to my deadness all the more. But Jesus coming in on the scene as the true light and making me new changes everything. Here's the one big difference between spiritually dead people and spiritually alive people is what we're really talking about. Spiritually dead people and spiritually alive people, they react to Jesus differently. They look at who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about differently. For example, uh, someone who puts uh, just moral band-aids over old wounds, someone who's just taking moral band-aids and putting them on old wounds so they can become a better person, can look at Jesus and go, hey, Jesus is great, that's good, I believe it, and, and I think he'll, he'll probably help me. He'll probably help me get there. I'll do better in some ways. right? But that person can take the ideas of Jesus and his teachings and look to imply them externally only in hopes that they live a better, more fulfilled, more happy life. If I could just get through Christmas and not want to kill my family members, 
if I could just get through Christmas and, and give a little bit more money to Salvation Army or whatever, right? Jesus as my moral band-aid. But a spiritually alive person will look at the truth of Jesus, will find the truth of Jesus invigorating, right? The truth of Jesus lands down on the helicopter pad of your heart and your soul, and you feel alive. Transformation happens. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? The spiritually alive person has the word of Christ in them, and they feel alive. It's breathing life into them every time they talk about Jesus or they look at the truths and the promises of Jesus. That's how you know you're alive. You take the word of Christ, and it's not just a moral band-aid, but it's actually a tool that goes to work on your heart surgically and changes you from the inside out, not just slapping a band-aid on the outside, right? Instead of living with worry, for example, the born-again, enlightened person begins to see the scriptures and ask himself, why am I worrying? If I have a God who cares and provides and is with me and will never, ever forsake me and that nothing in this world could ever, even my own sinfulness, could never, ever separate me from the love that God has for me in Christ. So why worry, soul? Why worry? Or bitterness, right? Here's a bitterness thing, right? You think, man, if I'm that loved and I'm that accepted by God and his grace through Jesus... Why am I carrying the weight of this burden against this person around? Why am I going to hold this person in a prison of unforgiveness? I've heard it said before, right, that worry is believing God won't get it right, and that bitterness is believing that God hasn't gotten it right. John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. There's new life, and there's new appetites now, and there's wisdom, and there's, there's peace, and there's self-control being worked in, to the depths of the soul, right? It comes through new life that's found in Jesus. And here's what it comes down to, the difference between the spiritually alive person and the spiritually dead person. You have to look at the center, right? So what we mean by the center is look at the, the affections of the heart or the motivations of the heart. For example, spiritually dead person will say, their center is, look at what I've done, look at what I am doing, or let me tell you about what I plan on doing to become a better person. The spiritually alive person has the gospel, the good news of Jesus at the center, which says this, that none of us love God with our entire being, and none of us love our neighbor, none of us love refugees, none of us love anybody as ourselves. And because of that, we are dead, we are left hopeless, we are sinful, we are broken, we are in the darkness. But God, in his grace, comes and through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, brings in new life, brings in freedom, and welcomes you into the family of God and his adopted son and daughter with a new identity, with new values, not left hopeless, not left as an orphan, not left alone in the darkness ever again. You are part of God's family because of what Jesus did now. And he's working in you. And he'll never give up on that work. When the light of the truth begins to shine deep down in the depths of your soul internally, that's when change starts to happen. Transformation starts to happen. That's because the gospel, that's because our whole Christmas story and season screams at us that the coming of Jesus, the light of the world, changes everything. Everything. You've got to look at Paul, Paul the Apostle. 
You go to Philippians 3, right? And he's having this dialogue here, and he's saying, you want to talk about like moral records and how good of a person I was? Let me tell you, let me tell you, look at my record. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? I was a Pharisee. I was zealous for the law. I was nailing it academically. 4.0 kid, right? Scholarships all over the place. I was zealous and I was excited for the law. I was the obedience king. This is who I was. But he says, I had attained in every way, but I counted all as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul sees that the old life does not matter anymore. And here's the, here's the, here's the kicker, right? Here's the kicker with this, right? It doesn't matter whether you were the worst of society or you were the best of society. Right? This is what's beautiful. Not only do my trophies of moralism not count anymore so I can't be puffed up, but my sins, my heinous sins, don't weigh me down anymore so that I won't be crushed anymore. But what matters is new life found in Jesus. And John says this comes through believing his name. Not earning your way to him, but believing his name. Real quick, you've got to also see this. We also have to see that the new birth gives us a new family. We have new family rights. Verse 12, he says this. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're adopted into the family if we're born again. And the question that I want you to be thinking about and for us to be thinking about as a community as we depart and live our lives Monday through Saturday is this. Am I living my life on the basis of these rights as a born-again, new birth, new identity, new creation in Jesus? Am I living my life based on these rights that now God says I have? There are two big rights we have in this family that I want to hit you with. It's this. The first one's this. The first big right is that we have access to the Father. You and I have now access to the Father. And here's the question I was asking myself this week as I was writing this out reworking this. It's this. Am I reminding myself that my Father in heaven loves me just like he loves his natural born son? That's Romans 8. Am I reminding myself day in and day out when my heart wants to condemn me or when I feel guilty because I messed it up once again? Am I reminding myself that no matter what, my Father in heaven loves me just like his natural, son, natural born son, Jesus? That my Father loves me more than I love myself and that my Father wants greater things for me than I ever could want for myself? Because if I can get myself to living there and preaching to myself there and talking this out to my soul there, then I can live with a joy and a power. A joy and a power. So the first right is that we have an access to the Father. Now, the second is this, is that we are now heirs. Heirs. The Bible says that if you're a son or you're a daughter of the king, then everything the king owns will come to you. And what does the king own? Everything. Right? He owns everything. And Romans 8, 18 says that someday when the sons of God are revealed in their glorious freedom and liberty and the entire world is revealed, all of nature and everything... Everything, all of it, is going to be revealed in glory. First Peter, Jesus' apostle Peter says, hey, listen, this inheritance that's coming your way is undefiled, is imperishable, and it's never going to fade. It's not going away. Unlike all of the trinkets and toys that we 
set our hearts and affections on, whether it's the car, whether it's the, the academic career, or the, or, or the financial status, or where I live, or how well my kids are raised up, or how well I'm doing amongst my friends, or what my reputation is, or how I'm doing as a pastor, all of that stuff goes poof. But the inheritance that's promised to us now, our family rights that we are heirs of, is undefiled, imperishable, and is never going to fade. That's our inheritance. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, he can make the feeblest and filthiest of us into bright, stainless mirrors, reflecting back to God his own boundless love and glory and beauty and delight and nobility and wisdom. That's what John is telling us. To those of you who profess to have this new life, are you rejoicing in your rights as children of the light? When you experience turbulence of the soul, however that looks, what will people think of me? What do I look like? What's my figure look like? Can I get into a size four? Can I, you know, why's my hair look? Am I losing hair on the top? How are my kids doing? What do people think about my kids when I'm in public? What's my academic status? What's my financial status? Where do I live? Where am I going? What's my future? What about my past? All of the things, the turbulence of the soul. Will I make enough money? Am I doing well enough? What does Paul say? Paul says in Romans, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Here's where I think Paul wants us to go with this. He says, listen, if by believing in the name of his son Jesus, you are welcomed into the family of God and you now have rights as heirs, children of God, children of the light, I want you to think out the glory of your sonship. I want you to be so overwhelmed at who you are now as a son or as a daughter of the king. I want you to think out until you remember that you have a father in heaven who is in charge of history, who tells me that he is working all of history for my best, that I have a father in heaven who will guide me, who will accept me, who loves me and will never leave me nor forsake me that I have a father who sent his son into the world as the light to shine in the darkness and call his kids out of darkness and into marvelous light and then send them back into darkness to proclaim marvelous light, that there is hope and it's found in Jesus. Paul says, let the glory of your sonship overwhelm you until you have a comfort that far outweighs anything that you go through in life, anything. Think out the glory of who you are before God now because of what Jesus, the true light, has come to do. So my question to you this morning is really this, another question. Are you alive? Are you alive? Can you hear? Can you see? The best way to know you're alive is to know that you are dead, to know the darkness that you came from, that God called you out of, and to know that you are now alive, that you are on life support because of Jesus, and that Jesus isn't just the, 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 the passenger in the ambulance, but he's driving it and he's got an IV connected to you, keeping you alive until he gets you there someday. That Jesus is the sustainer. Let's close like this. Think about it. Your home, your apartment, your condo, your bedroom, whatever, your bathroom. If I were to bring the big Free Willy whale, remember Free Willy back in the day? You loved that movie? You watched it with your kids? Couldn't stand it. Um, the free willy, remember free willy, if, if I were to bring free willy over to your house, right, and just say, hey, I'm going to drop free willy, and I'm going to put him in the center of your house, or your apartment, or your car, um, what would you think? 
do you think things would change a little bit? Do you think things would be rearranged a little bit in the apartment or your house or your bedroom? Of course it would. The size of the, be the, size of the being demands that it will have completely changed things. It's going to change. There's no doubt about it. How much more must it be if God lives in your life and my life? That if God, if I'm alive and God is making his indwelling in me, then things are bound to change. And so I have to ask my own heart this. Are, am I somebody who's being moved to the depths of my being and my heart by the gospel day in and day out? Am I someone who's changing? Am I someone who's had the furniture rearranged in my soul? Because here's the reality, FCC, that if God comes and makes his indwelling, he's too big to kind of stick in the closet. He's not going to stay in the closet. If he comes and he makes his dwelling in the heart and soul of your life, it's bound to change you. It's bound to change our church collectively. Friends, believe Jesus is God. Believe that he died. Believe that he rose for you. And I want you to stand as you leave this place today. I want you to stand on the basis that says, my father accepts me because of what Jesus said. Because if you do that, you will have a comfort that will overcome anything. Amen?